Welcome to episode two of what is currently called The Great Indoors. I am your humble host, Ridge Creswell, broadcasting to you from the wilds of rural Connecticut currently. Um, the reason I say that uh, currently called that is that it has come to my attention that there are at least four or five other podcasts called The Great Indoors. Clearly, it's a funny name. Um, one of those is fairly popular and current and is about interior design. Another has started since coronavirus, um, presumably with the same idea that we had. So, we may have to address that. For now, my guest today on the podcast is David James Poissant. Jamie, who uh, joined our community maybe a month ago, maybe a little longer. He came very happily through a connection, a mutual friend, to join our reading. And uh, we have... You know, gotten to know him a bit and had the pleasure of, of hearing some of his work. Uh, he is the author of the currently published, as of this week, Lake Life from Simon and Schuster. It is a book that is, I will, full disclosure, I'm about halfway through it. It is wonderful. It's amazing. Very good. Um, you know, we had an interesting conversation. Uh, we got to talk about early influences. We talked about the true life event that inspired the novel. Um, we talked about finding his voice and i think that was probably the most illuminating part of the discussion for me um you'll get to hear about that um and we also talked a bit about the writing process and how you know the writing and publication process is not this neat tidy thing that you can put a bow on and i think that's an interesting point of view for people to um get to hear i guess so without further ado i'll give you a brief biography and then the interview David James Poissant is the author of the story collection The Heaven of Animals, in print in five languages, winner of the GLCA New Writers Award and a Florida Book Award, longlisted for the Penn slash Robert W. Bingham Prize, and a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. His stories and essays have appeared in The American Scholar, The Atlantic Monthly, The Chicago Tribune, The New York Times, One Story, Plowshares, The Southern Review, and in numerous anthologies. He's a recipient of scholarships and fellowships from Breadloaf, Siwanee, Tin House, Wesleyan, and Longleaf Writers Conferences. He teaches in the MFA program at the University of Central Florida and lives in Orlando with his wife and daughters. As I said, his debut novel, Lake Life, was published by Simon & Schuster on July 7th, 2020. Without any further ado, let's talk to Jamie. I am joined by David James Poissant, author of the upcoming book, Lake Life. How are you doing? I'm good, Ridge. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, so, you know, we are still in the infancy here of, of the great indoors as an idea for a reading series, a podcast, whatever it ends up being. Um, well, however many things it ends up being, I should say. Uh, but... Um, the main thrust of what I've been talking to people about is, as I think I told you beforehand, you know, we all learn to read and write. We, we all have to go to art class when we're children, but only a few of us really pursue it much further than, you know, the obligatory research papers and, and required, you know, book reports. So was there a moment in time you can remember where you thought, like, maybe I could do more of this? Yeah, I think I've, I've got kind of two answers to that question, because... You know, I think for most writers, there's first there's the moment when you realize you love reading, and then there's 
was the moment you realized that you think you want to contribute to to this th- these these books. Um, for me, I was I grew up a very resistant reader. I did not like reading, which was really hard on my mom, who is a librarian. And uh, <laughs> but she tricked me. She tricked me, which was great to get me to read. Finally, when she, she was so despairing that I never read, that in sixth or seventh grade she started buying me comic books, ah. uh, which I always tell you know the parents of of kids if they don't like reading you know there's this weird idea that comics don't count that they're not real books Mm -hmm. and i'm like no especially today there are so many great works of art and graphic novels uh so i'm always telling them give them calvin and Hobbes, give them comics give them Mm -hmm. you know when they're older give them alison bechdel um because there's so much to learn from graphic narrative and so I, i read comics for years so i think the first book i fell in love with though was in 11th grade in american literature as cliche as it is, The Great Gatsby, that was the book that hmm. got me. I think what hmm. got me was the sophistication of the characters. I was so used to the kind of, not that it's like this now, but back then Marvel superheroes were kind of good or bad, black sure. or white. Yeah, and in The Great Gatsby, you definitely have more moral complexity, right? Absolutely, yeah. Every character is is messed up in, in, in their own way. Hmm. Um, so that was fascinating. And then I went to college and I was assigned Gatsby again, and I still <laughs> loved it. And I went on to to read it a number of times, and I wrote my first paper in college about it. So I I, I switched um, in my after my second year. Yeah, so I finished freshman and sophomore year of college. I was I was a lot of different majors. I was an art major. I was then I was journalism. Then I was uh, communications with a public relations focus, and then uh, just switched to English. And from there on, I just wanted to read and write poetry. So the only creative writing class I took as an undergrad was a poetry class. And I realized pretty quickly I was not a poet because uh, my poetry was basically, it was so narrative. They were just like little mm. short stories. Um, but after college, I just spent a few years teaching high school and reading like crazy, reading about a book a day and became an addict of the short story. And mm. at some point during those Four years between the ages of 22 and 26, writing stories, I just fell in love with the the process of writing. It's interesting coming from, you know, I, I think a lot of us have a similar background where maybe we weren't necessarily motivated by books, but in a way it's almost, sometimes it's good for kids that comics are different <laughs> because for the kid it's different too. And you sort of think like, oh, this is like, for me, I definitely remember a very distinct beach trip involving uh, a stack of the now I know terrible West Coast Avengers uh, in the (laughs) mid 90s. But like at the time, it was absolutely fascinating. And I I really get what you mean. So you read Gatsby in high school and then again, freshman year of college. Did you go back and have you gone back to it any time recently? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've read mm. Gatsby now 12 or 13 times wow, over okay. the past 20 years. And I've also read Trimalchio, which was like the first draft of Gatsby mm. before Fitzgerald sent it to Maxwell Perkins. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's still one of my favorite books. Okay, that's amazing. That's great that that's stuck with you. So the I guess pivoting a little bit towards lake life. We had you on the, the the live version of this a few Fridays ago and, and hearing a little bit about what the book is about. I did get, I didn't get a great Gatsby vibe, but now that you mentioned the moral complexity, there's been this style lately of like uh, something happens and then everybody's secrets come out and it causes a huge number of problems. Whether it's a lot of times on TV shows, it's like a, 
a seaside town where a boy is murdered and then everyone's secrets are out. And this has a similar vibe. It's it's almost gothic in nature, but it's it's interesting that you would I guess turn back to the human complexity stuff. Yeah, I would say that 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 that's about where the comparison to Gatsby ends. Um, sure. For me, for for this book, I was I was really interested in place. Um, I grew up in Georgia, so I'm obsessed with Flannery O'Connor, which is where you might be picking up on that that Southern mm-hmm. Gothic kind of vibe. That's definitely <laughs> Maybe that's there. What I can it is, own yeah. that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and funny. yeah, but I, I think for this book, I. You know, unlike Gatsby, which is entirely about people, people will some people will say Gatsby is the main character of Gatsby. Mm. I'm I'm on the side that believes it's absolutely Nick's story. It's mm. it's Nick's version of Gatsby. Um, it's his mm. book, his first person. Uh, this this was a book where I, I've got six characters: a mother, a father, the two sons, um, one son's wife, the other son's boyfriend, and I wanted to give all six of these characters mm. kind of equal weight through this close third person narration. And each of them are kind of taking their turns, telling mm. the story, and in their so it, it's it, there's a lot of action in the book, but it's also very interior. Um, as much as I love Fitzgerald, I also love you know like Virginia Woolf or Michael Cunningham. These writers spend a lot of time in their characters' heads. So um, yeah, I, I think it's 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 a book that's that's a lot about the way that people think. Um, it's a book where the characters spend a lot of time thinking about their pasts and the secrets that that come to the surface but also where they're thinking about the present you know one one interesting thing about this novel the reason it took me nine years to write is because history has been changing so fast in this decade Mm. so when i yeah when i wrote the first draft of this novel in like 2011-12 a big focus of the novel was the two of these characters were kind of arguing for gay marriage and then in 2015, gay marriage happily was legalized. And then that argument was unnecessary. Um, it was so quickly accepted by the country. Um, there was also a lot of political arguing in the family, the way all families argue about politics. And, but all these arguments were about Romney versus Obama. And as soon as Trump was unimaginably elected, um, I couldn't pretend like that wasn't happening. So <laughs> It'd be hard to just sort of like, put an asterisk on it and be like, this novel takes place yeah. in 2011. Like that's a very specific, strange decision to make. So that's, that's really interesting because I think, you know, as things have become more maybe um, divisive, even more divisive, I guess, politically, you know, the dynamic inside a lot of families has really yes. shifted. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think probably anyone who's listening to this right now would have experienced that <laughs> to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the the novel itself, um, my understanding at least, uh, focus sort of the the catalyzing event for all this is a drowning. Yes. Now, uh, was this based on any sort of real case, or is this sort of just sort of this seemed like the best setting to have this all happen? Well, yeah. So so there are you know I did a little research before I began the book, and and there are tons of summer drownings at lakes all across the world. Mm. Um, so that's, it, it's fascinating how often it happens and how little we talk about it. But the, the, the catalyst for me was in 2008 or nine on, on 4th of July weekend, I was with my parents. They have, um, you know, a double wide trailer that's been converted into a house on Lake Oconee in, in South Georgia. Uh, this, this novel is actually set in the Carolinas because we used to go and stay at a friend's house in, uh, 
on Lake Toxaway in North Carolina. But we were on Lake Oconee. We'd gone to this fireworks display at night. And then afterward, about 100 boats were all racing away from, from the dam where there'd been these fireworks. And as I was looking to, to sort of my horror, there was a little boy who was couldn't have been more than five or six years old sitting on the very back of the boat, like like right on, on next to the motor, um, where if they had hit some chop or a wave, he would have been overboard. Mm. And I think he was wearing these flimsy little water wings that would have popped right off. And and I was like, if he if he goes under, a boat's going to hit him. He's he's going to die. And yeah. luckily, as soon as I saw it, a police boat sort of zipped out of nowhere and pulled that boat over. And I'm sure they got the healthiest <laughs> ticket. Uh, and that's not the kind of thing you usually see. Most of the time, you know, a lot of these people on these lakes, they, they know the laws and, and they respect the laws and, and boating is, you know, managing watercraft is, is a pretty serious thing, taken pretty seriously uh, on most lakes. So, um, but I couldn't get that idea out of my head. Like what if he had fallen off the back of the boat? What if he had drowned? What would my role have been as, as this kind of privileged witness to this tragedy? And, and then I just started writing about it. I imagined if it had happened and, and what, what that would be for someone who, who didn't even know the family, but, but just sort of the shock of seeing it, how that would ripple into your own family and, and change your family dynamics. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, I can see how that would ripple through a family and people's reactions to it would cause problems and people's prejudices or, uh, beliefs, um, might, might come right up to the surface in reaction to that. That's really interesting. I'm tempted to ask, although you don't have to go into any detail about it. Um, does, is there any resemblance to your own family in this family? Yeah. Just in the kind of the, the makeup of the family, like there's a mother, there's a father and there's two sons. Um, my parents are still together and I have a brother. Um, and I, I think I just did that because I knew that the familiarity of that family dynamic at that point, the, the resemblance stops. Although, you know, I, while I have one brother, I kind of have two brothers. I have a best friend and he, he and I have grown up together since seventh grade. Uh, and when I say we're close, I mean like he and I are the, as close as two people can be. We talk on the phone for about an hour every night. So, um, the only, I mean, other than my wife, he's the person I'm closest to in the world. And um, so he and his boyfriend are uh, were definitely a couple I looked toward when I wanted to try to portray um, a gay relationship authentically. And um, it was kind of with his with his careful eye and blessing that I that I dared to kind of move into that territory and try to to do it justice. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's really important that we you know strive for both authenticity, but uh, three-dimensional representation and that's actually something i wanted to pivot to um your previous short story collection uh the heaven of animals there was a phrase in one of the descriptions that i read of that book that i just kind of had to ask about in the description there was a phrase there that i thought really stood out in comparison to a lot of things in american culture right now which is these are stories hell-bent on hope Obviously, we've talked about complexity and maybe adding edges to characters or having a, a mix, as we all are, between maybe positive and negative qualities or impulses. But it's interesting that your work is optimistic as well. That's not a voice that we're hearing a lot from, you know, whether it's 
uh, social media, whether it's the regular media, um, you know, cynicism is sort of the rule of the day. Is that something you give particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and also what I, what I'm, what I'm totally comfortable saying is that while my work is hopeful to me, if a reader reads it and doesn't find it hopeful, that's not the wrong reading sure. either. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's fair. You know, I've had some people read that collection and they'll say, um, you know, oh, it, it gave me so much peace and, and joy. And others will say, like, that was so depressing. You ruined my holidays. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, every person brings their own their own um, aesthetic and their own worldview and their own backstory to to any reading. But, yeah, I, I think for me that that the idea of hopefulness came about um, when I was in grad school. So I, I went to the University of Arizona to do my MFA, like, mm-hmm. like a lot of writers go to M- M- do their MFAs these days. Mm-hmm. And um, my first workshop teacher was an amazing writer, and she's now the director of the program. Her name is Aurelie Sheehan. Mm. She's a fantastic writer. And she taught me so much. But the thing that she taught me that stuck with me the most is when I came into that program – I wanted very much to be, even though I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a quiet guy, I'm very sensitive, I'm pretty emotional, I wanted, for whatever misguided reason, to be one of these grit-lit Southern writers. So I was mm. reading a lot of Harry Cruz and Tom Franklin, mm. Donald Ray Pollock, people like this, who are all great writers, but they didn't kind of, I don't know, um, fit my soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. And she, uh, so she read my first story, which was me doing everything I could to kind of be this tough macho writer. And she said, you know, it's fine, but it doesn't sound like you. She said, you know, I would love to see what your work sounded like if you were willing to risk sentimentality. Mm. And that phrase, risking sentimentality, stayed with me and is still with me because, you know, I think we're, as writers, we're all afraid of being charged with being sentimental, mm-hmm. but there's a big difference between sentiment and sentimentality between, between hopefulness and naive optimism. So that became kind of the new challenge. Like it's, it's easy to write or easier for me to write a story in which, you know, the world is, is evil and everyone is bad. Um, but to try to, to write a, a character's point of view where, you know, there is something to be grateful for. There is, there is a, a shot at redemption. There is absolution that, that to me is more of a challenge. And, and that's kind of where I found my voice for, for stories and, and for the novel. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in having, you know, a realistic portrait of the world, which of course, terrible things are happening all the time. And, um, and there are people that do unforgivable things, um, but the characters I'm writing about are, are kind of ones that are often seeking redemption for something they've done. Um, and I'm interested in looking at what that looks like. You know, sometimes the answer is that they will be forgiven. Um, sometimes they can't be forgiven, but the answer is they just need to keep going because there's nothing else to do. Um, so, you know, the, that looks different for every character in every story because I try not to write the exact same story again and again. But yeah, I, I, I like... I like that focus on, on, on some sort of hopefulness. It's really interesting that you say that because I think a lot of people who think about writing a story or a movie or creating something sort of approach it with this. It has to be dramatic, right? And, and there is, you know, whatever your flavor is, whether it's uh, the Southern, you know, tough guy writers, whether it's like I know people who are into noir, 
But I think that I love what your professor said there of, of risking sentimentality. And that's the risk of vulnerability, of, of writing something that touches yourself and then handing it to someone and saying, like, what do you think? Um, I can imagine, you know, that's both a... Well, it's a, it's a huge world expansion for a student. You know, it's both a giant door being thrown open, but on the other, maybe scarier hand, it's a giant door being yes. thrown open and you have to like reckon with that. <laughs> so did it take time or was it sort of just this, once you started learning to listen to maybe putting a little nugget of, of true emotionality in there? For me, it was, it was immediate. Like, I think it was, it was the, that big door opening to what I always wanted to write, but was afraid to, um, you know, I distrusted earnestness and I just needed to be myself. And, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve in real life. So um, why not write stories that, that risk that? And, you know, if they're not for everybody because they are too earnest, that's fine too. You know? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that to me also sums up a really key attitude not necessarily that like not it's not not caring what people think it's no no it's understanding yourself and being that yeah instead of trying to fit into any mold i think that's for for all creative people because you know we will all learn by copying those people we admire and then at some point we'll go yeah but but i think you know xyz so that's a, that's wonderful that you found that uh when did you go to grad school straight after? Oh, no, you t taught high school for a while first. So you went to grad school later on. Yeah, I, I took four years between undergrad and grad school to teach high school and kind of figure myself out. You know, I'm so glad I did not go straight from undergrad to grad school because I just wasn't ready. I think, you know, I, I mean, I, I definitely had not done my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours before I went to grad school. <laughs> well, I had definitely read my 10,000 hours. And I think that the best thing you can do in preparation for a creative writing MFA is to go there already well read, if not necessarily someone. It, it's okay. You know, I see my students come in and the ones who haven't established like a daily writing pattern or um, don't know what they want to write about, that's okay. But I do worry about the ones who've come in and they haven't read anything. Would your advice be read a lot of what you like or just try to read everything? Absolutely read everything. You know, don't, don't ignore what you like, you know, don't be ashamed of what you like. Um, you know, if you know what you like, you should always be reading that too. But I think what you like will change if you give yourself the chance to read things you didn't think you would like, you know, like I didn't think I would like Virginia Woolf. I'd heard she was too hard and the sentences were long and it was nothing happened in Mrs. Dalloway, you know, these, these <laughs> I heard these things, um, and then I read this uh, great Michael Shabon essay about Mrs. Dalloway. And I was like, oh, I like him and he likes Mrs. Dalloway. So maybe I should read it. And I read it and I was just like, oh, I had one of those, where has this book been all my life experiences? And, uh, and I was like, you know, I need to be reading much more widely. So one of my favorite books, and I, I've been waiting, you know, 20 years for the follow-up, but there's a, a writer, ZZ Packer, um, she wrote this amazing story collection, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. Um, she's African-American and she writes about the African-American experience in Louisville, Kentucky. Which, uh, I lived in Kentucky for two years, so I can tell you it's supposed to be pronounced Louisville. Like if, if you put too much, if, if your tongue is working too hard, you're saying it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been, uh, I, I've been chastised by people for saying Louisville before, yeah. for sure. Yes. Louisville. 
Yes. <laughs> but that collection is, is I mean, I'm not the first person to say it. Like it was, it was a huge book and, and she won a, a whole raft of awards deservedly. So, and she's been working on a novel for, I think like 20 years and I can't wait to read it one of these days. Um, but that, that was a book that, yeah, when I just, I would go to the library at that point, I, you know, I was 22, I didn't have much money. And so I was just checking out all the books I could. Um, and if, if it was in, I would go to the new short story section and just grab all the books and read them. And that book was, it's still one that I've, I've taught numerous times. Um, there's a story in there called Brownies, which is, is very often anthologized in, in a bunch of teaching creative writing books. Cause it's kind of a, a perfect short story. And that story especially, um, has all like the Gothic elements of a Flannery O'Connor story, but it's also dealing with this, these very complicated questions of, of race and, um, yeah, I, I won't be able to do it justice in describing it, except to just say, like, yeah, everyone who likes to read should should race out and get a coffee of a copy of Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. Uh, I think it's one of one of the most important books of the uh, of the twenty first century. Honestly, that's awesome. I think books that can successfully translate someone else's world into your head. You know, especially for ones that maybe cross cultural lines or have been translated or whatever it is. Um, again, the book you wouldn't necessarily reach for um, when that can. It's another door being thrown open, I guess, is the best way to say mm -hmm. it. It's another expansion um, regarding uh, her taking 20 years for the follow up. I did want to ask. So uh, you had the, the short story collection in 2014. You've been working on the novel since 2011 um, was was there any of this sort of, I've heard people talk about the anxiety surrounding the second thing that you're trying to get published. Was that the case for you or was it always sort of separate? There's short stories and then there's a novel. No, the anxiety was very real. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the way it came about was in 2012, we sold the novel and the stories together. Oh. Uh, the story collection was done i mean mm -hmm. almost all of those stories had previously been published in magazines which meant they had all been edited by the editors of those magazines they were all pretty tight mm. they didn't require much work mostly it was just a matter of of my editor and i going through and deciding what works i had way too many stories i think i had like 30 or 40 stories and, and we only needed 15 or 16 so it was kind of a matter of deciding which ones go in in what order mm -hmm. And if, you know, any needed to be edited a little, but then at the same time, they bought the novel on this partial, which is how a lot of novels are bought, where I showed them 112 pages and they said, you know, how long is it going to be? And I said, I don't know, 400 pages. And they said, okay. And they bought it. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I had kind of begun the novel reluctantly as a way to sell the collection. Hmm. Now, luckily, you know, 100 pages in, I was invested and I actually wanted to write the novel for the right reasons, mm. um, not just for mercenary kind of reasons. But uh, we got about, you know, I, I got about 200 pages in and it was originally set over the course of four days. And my editor and I realized very quickly it only needed to take place over three days. And pretty much everything I'd done in day one before the drowning was me figuring out who the characters were, bringing them to the lake house for the weekend. And it was all 
interesting stuff, but it was nothing that a reader should have to endure. Mm-hmm. Like a reader shouldn't have to read, you know, a hundred plus pages of me figuring out my characters. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the book just begins with the drowning and then moves forward. There was nothing in those first hundred pages that couldn't have been thrown off in a few lines of dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, you know, references to this the day before. So then I was starting at square one with, you know, I just threw 112 pages away and now I've got to begin the book with chapter, what I thought was chapter 11 is now mm. chapter one. That's when the anxiety started kicking in. Yeah, and that then, sounds terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so then originally my deadline to deliver the novel was mid 2014. Um, that just f- flew by. And <laughs> I think I turned in the first full draft sometime in 2015. It was a mess. Um, got the next draft in 2017 and it was way too long. It was almost 600 pages. Um, and then it, it was around 2018 that it really began coming together when I took that draft, cut it way down. Um, and then in 2019 started to really polish the book at the sentence level. But over the course of this, the, the other thing that, that I don't blame anyone but myself, hmm. but one thing that slowed things down a little was, you know, my editor at Simon and Schuster, the beloved Millicent Bennett, who, who acquired and edited the first book and hmm. helped me with the first draft of this novel. She left Simon and Schuster and, and, moved to another publishing company, which is very common. Mm. Almost every writer goes through this. These the editors in New York play musical chairs. So uh, I was assigned to another editor and he had kind of a slightly different vision for the novel. Mm. And then in 2018, he left. And then I was assigned a third editor. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's sort of a timing thing where it's like, if you got tripped up by something yourself and yes. then, you know, uh, Millicent comes to you and is like, well, I got to tell you, I'm moving on. You'll be working with this guy. And then he comes in and just says like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? Yeah. I can imagine that being, um, cause that's, that's the difficult thing about, uh, writing for pure creativity and the sort of business slash bureaucracy apparatus of publishing. <laughs> uh, they're two very, very different things. Um, yep. in the end, do you feel like that process netted you sort of the best version you could get though? It absolutely did. Mm. Yeah. Cause I not and not in the, not to say like any novel should be written by committee. And so mm-hmm. that by taking all three of their ideas into account, it became like this, this Frankensteinian monster. Um, sure. uh, it, I think it became better because each of them, while they were bringing slightly different tweaked visions, they were all really good about saying, you know, at the end of the day, it's your, Mm. And I definitely stuck to my guns on the things that I cared most about. Um, so I think each one made it better in their way. But the uh, the third editor, who I'm still with, Sean Manning at Simon & Schuster, and I, I think he'll be there for a while because he was, pro- instead of leaving Simon & Schuster, he was promoted in-house, which okay. is good. a good, good sign to hopefully stay because <laughs> I'd love to keep working with him. Mm-hmm. But um, he he was amazing in that you know my agent and I were so scared if, if he left that he worked with me all through the um the summer of 2019 and mm. we literally corresponded every single day he would send me tons of feedback on a chapter and i would spend 10 12 hours that night just working on all his edits and mm. then the next day we do the next so we did that for like 40 days straight we worked on all 40 chapters of the book yeah um, like i i know he must have had 10 or 12 other books under his belt at 
to be working on it at the same time. But he made me feel like I had all of his attention mm. you know, for two months. So it was a, it was a really magical experience when we were finally in the home stretch of determined to get this book good. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Having said that, what's uh, uh, on the after the obviously lengthy uh, break and celebration period surrounding your publication, do you have anything that you are already working on now or thinking about? Yes. So um, I, as I was writing the novel for, it wasn't all I did for nine years. I wrote a lot of stories and I wrote a number of essays. So I've already sent my new story collection to my agent. She's reading it now. Um, and we're going to try to kind of feel out the, I mean, who knows what, what the future of book publishing in New York is going to be um, here in 2020, um, given everything that's going on. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how, I guess I'm sure a lot will depend on how the novel is received. Um, but uh, so she has a collection. I'm proud of it. And I'm She's also encouraged me to keep working on this new novel. So I'm, I'm about 100 pages into a novel. Uh, it is set in Florida. So this will kind of be my first, even though I've lived in Florida now for nine years, this is, this is really my first stab at truly writing about Florida. And uh, I think, you know, it, <laughs> don't hold me to this because <laughs> nine years from now, someone will cite this interview. But <laughs> mm, I doubt it. But... <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, however naively, I I think I've learned from a number of the mistakes I made in the process of writing the first novel. I think I can finish this one in a couple years, but <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Personally, I think Jamie's goal is attainable, but uh, I like that he's honest. I really do. If you enjoyed this interview, please go purchase a copy of his novel, Lake Life. Uh, please follow him on Twitter at DJ Poissant, P-O-I-S-S-A-N-T. You can follow the show on Twitter at TGICast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ridge Cresswell. And you can follow the show's lovely talent booker slash uh, foundational organizational executive Trina Thibodeau at Trina Tibbs, T-R-E-E-N-A-T-H-I-B-S. With that, the only thing really left to say is please join us on Zoom for our weekly literature reading and hang. We will be on from 7 to 10 with the reading from 8 to 9. Uh, the Zoom ID number is 728-9321-2031. You can also find that on our Twitter uh, if you don't have the time to write that down at the moment, which of course you don't. This is a podcast. Anyways, we hope to see you there on Friday. For now, thank you so much once again and as always for listening and take good care of yourself.